through our kitchen, our living room, towards her bedroom. I turned the corner, and I saw the worst thing possible for such a moment. The clothes I had seen her earlier in that day were neatly folded on her bed. And my heart sank. I began to scream and yell and cry, desperate for her to respond to me, to hear me and respond to me. And I can still feel that fear, y'all. My knees like went to jello just, <laughs> just telling you about it. I ran back through the house and my eyes caught the phone. I thought, that's it. I'll call grandma. I knew for a fact if grandma answered the phone, then I was safe. The rapture could not have occurred if grandma was answering phones. <laughs> and my worst fear at that moment could have been put to rest. The phone rang and rang as my panic grew with every ring and finally an mm, hello, <laughs> which is my grandmother's signature way of answering the phone was like music to my ears and calm just washed over me, but not fast enough. Before I could figure out what to say, she asked if I was okay, probably because she could hear me trying to put the brakes on all the ugly crying. And I guess saying exactly what I had been thinking out loud to her seemed ridiculous. So I squeaked out, asking her if my mom was at her house. After all, I counted vehicles, not horses. <laughs> so she said no, but she told me she'd just seen my dad and my mom was probably outside. I hung up, more confident in my search, and walked all the way out to the barn. Sure enough, when my mom was cleaning out horse stalls, completely oblivious to the absolute panic attack I'd been thrown in 10 minutes prior. I wish I could tell you that was the only time I was ever afraid with anything relating to the end times. Unfortunately, that was one story of many similar ones I could tell you with slightly varying details. We are entering into portions of scripture that deal with the last things or the time period leading up and dealing with the return of Christ. I'd say most of us don't spend a whole lot of time thinking about this subject, but if we do, there are a few similar thoughts that flood our minds. And I would say these thoughts have been surrounded by a cloud of fear, usually leading to a dreading of the return of Christ. And in some circles, if the return of Christ is discussed, it mostly becomes a contentious argument because the focus falls on the when and how instead of the what and who. My personal opinion is those emotions have come from being discipled more by outside sources than the actual Bible itself in regard to the Lord's second coming. In fact, I'd go so far to say that the rapture has overtaken the entire conversation in the last several decades to the church's detriment. One element of one subset of one eschatological view has been a roadblock to seeing other clear elements of Christ's return in scripture. From conversations in the last week getting a feel for the spectrum of experiences found in and out of this room, most people, are, people older than me relate more to the contentious arguments that talking about the end times can bring. The people closer to my age associate the end times with fear, mostly from hearing or reading about the rapture as they were growing up. And many people younger than me shared that they don't think about or talk about the return of Christ at all. So maybe you have a story similar to mine. I can laugh about it now, but maybe you can't just yet because the fear is still too real. 
Maybe you've come from a background that made the rapture a definitive primary issue that resulted in divisive anger. Or maybe you have no idea what I'm even talking about because until this week's homework, you were just altogether unaware of what Christ's return was about. My point in sharing the story of me fearing that I had been left behind is not to give you my stance on a rapture or any eschatological view for that matter. My point in sharing this story is to show you the strong feelings of fear that were always below the surface in any discussion about Christ's return in my own life. We're not even going to get started on the prayers of dread I prayed, asking God that, uh, or asking God if I could reach another milestone before the event. These thoughts, emotions, and actions are the opposite of what the study of the last things is meant to produce in the life of believers. Tonight's first two passages deal with different elements of Christ's return. We will not be getting into into eschatological views tonight. We're going to do our best to stay out of the weeds (laughs) that can trip us up. If you haven't gotten to listen to that bonus episode Nicole and I recorded last week, that will be a helpful resource for you to follow up with. My goal tonight is to move beyond where most teaching or discussion has focused in recent decades, resulting in a lack of eager, hope-filled anticipation for core tenets of our faith, that we believe Christ will come again, that we believe he will judge the living and the dead, that we believe in the resurrection of the body, and that we believe in life everlasting. And those beliefs dealing with the future should direct our thoughts and actions in the present. Theology of every kind, including eschatology, matters. I know it's been a couple weeks since our last session, so in super quick review, I want you to see where this portion of the text falls in this first letter to the Thessalonians. Paul opened with a prayer of thanksgiving for his readers. He recounted his ministry to them. He shared of his deep love for them in sending Timothy to check in. And then he began tackling some of their concerns, sanctification in regard to sexual purity, and their love for others connected to their work. And all along, at nearly every end of every thought, Paul has mentioned Christ's return. And tonight we'll see him finally respond to two more, con- two more of their concerns dealing with the return of Christ and Paul's final instructions to the Thessalonians as he closes out this first epistle. We're going to start in chapter 4. We're going to read verses 13 through 18. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Good stuff. We're going to start at the top. We don't want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about those who are asleep. So whether by a word, uh, word of mouth from Timothy or letter correspondence, a concern has come to Paul from the Thessalonians. What happens to those who are in Christ that have physically 
died. As you remember, Paul and the Thessalonians believed Christ would return in their lifetime at the writing, at the time of writing this epistle. So their concern is for their spiritual family members who have died since Paul and his team left Thessalonica. The Thessalonians' concern here is that those who have died will miss the return of Christ, which they so longed for. After all, this is what their steadfast hope had been in amidst their persecution that they had endured, that Christ would come and deliver them. So their question to Paul is, what about those of us, our brothers and sisters in this spiritual family that have died? And this is what Paul and his team do not want the Thessalonians to be uninformed about. Before we go any further, there are some things that some of us may be uninformed with within the contents of this passage. We see physical death described as falling asleep. We see hope that is to be intermingled with grief. And we see Christ's return and the physical resurrection of the dead described. Now, we believe the whole of scripture teaches that at physical death, the souls of believers are in heaven with God. However, this isn't the end of the story. Often, dying and going to heaven seems to be our end goal according to how we speak and how we pray. The hope of Christ's resurrection and defeat of death is not for a disembodied eternal existence in heaven alone. No, the Bible's one story places the final hope of our faith on one day, all those in Christ being physically raised to the heavens and earth made new, where death will be no more and life will have no end. Paul picks up that he doesn't want the Thessalonians to be uninformed so that they would not grieve as others do who have no hope. The thought of the surrounding culture towards death in the afterlife at the time can be summed up in this Greek poet's quote, hope is for the living, the dead are without hope. Not comforting whatsoever. Grief as a result of death is real. All of us in this room have faced the death of someone that we cared for. Grief over the loss of a person is normal and expected. The Thessalonians' culture and confusion surrounding their loss, I'm sure, only compounded their grief. I think we try to short-circuit that very real grief to get to the hope too quickly today. We often talk about how our believing loved ones are in a better place and no longer suffering. And these things are true. Do not hear me say that they are not. They are true. There certainly is comfort to be found knowing that their souls are with the Lord. However, death is a result of the fall. It's the final part of the curse and the last enemy. Death is not a friend. Physical death on its own can't produce any hope in grief. Paul is going to share with the Thessalonians there is hope even with those who have faced death of a loved one. Just like we saw the call to love, uh, the call to love in countercultural ways in week three, this is a call to hope in a radical way, to hope even facing the reality of physical death. Paul is building up to the answer to their concern by reminding them that this hope is grounded in the resurrection of Christ in verse 14. It is because they believe that Jesus died and rose again that the Thessalonian believers can be sure that God will bring those who have died when Christ returns. 
Jesus Christ's resurrection guarantees the resurrection of those united in him. That's the hope that is to be intermingled with the natural grief of death. That hope is what separates kinds of grief. Knowing physical death is not the final destination for those in Christ. In verse 15, Paul gives them an answer by a word of the Lord, which in this context is thought to mean a teaching from Christ during his earthly ministry. And if you read Matthew 24 in full, you can see many similarities between Jesus' words and Paul's here to the Thessalonians. Paul says those who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord won't come before those who have died. And then he tells us exactly what's to take place. He gives a clear picture of the return of Christ and the resurrection of the dead in verses 16 and 17. He says, the Lord himself will come from heaven. And after Christ's ascension in Acts 1, two men appear, and they ask the disciples why they're looking at the sky. And the men tell them that Christ will return in the same manner as he ascended. This is what Paul is referring to. This is what he's talking about. We have three noises mentioned in this description. One, a cry of command. Most scholars think that this is God's command for the dead to rise. Two, the voice of an archangel. Archangels were considered to be the rulers of the heavenly beings or the main messengers. Here, this voice may just be simply added to God's command. And then three, the sound of the trumpet of God. This is the sound that announces the resurrection and calls together the people of God. What happens as a result of these noises? The dead in Christ will rise. This is the physical resurrection of those who have fallen asleep, whose souls have been with the Lord. They will rise first. Their souls from heaven and their raised glorified bodies will be joined together at this moment. And those who are alive will then be together with them, Christ and the brothers and sisters throughout all of history. Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 gives a bit further explanation of what will happen in this moment. And I'm going to give you time to turn there because it's good. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 50 through 57. I will tell you this, brothers and sisters. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written in the prophet Hosea. Death is swallowed up in victory. O oh, death, where is your victory? O oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't that a beautiful picture and hope-giving Back in verse 17, we see that phrase, caught up. That phrase in the Greek simply means snatching away, 
Notice those who are being caught up or snatched away are those who are alive. What are they being snatched away from? Physical death. And this is all happening in the clouds, okay? Clouds are a normal part of theophanies or appearances, physical manifestations of God throughout the Bible. And the word meat in verse 17 was often used to describe a particular instance when a king or a dignitary would be met outside of town and welcomed back home after a victory. We saw this in our study in 1 Samuel when Saul and David are welcomed back after David slayed Goliath. And this is most likely what the Thessalonians would have pictured when they heard that word. The picture would be those dead in Christ and the living being given glorified bodies to meet Christ in the air as a welcoming party and returning with Christ where he will judge, renew, and forever reign in the new heavens and new earth. Paul's description here was to answer the Thessalonians' concern for those who had died in Christ missing his return. Paul's answer is they won't miss it. They'll be in the most honored position. Those who died in Christ will be raised. Those living in Christ will be caught up and they will all be with the Lord forever, regardless of any interpretation you may hold to in passages concerning the last things. The end of verse 17 and 18 should keep us all grounded. From this passage, I want us to see that Christ's resurrection is in fact the guarantee of our own resurrection to come. We will physically be raised to a body incorruptible and imperishable whether we are alive or dead at his coming. And dwelling on that truth should fill our hearts with a hope that we long for the day. Our fully realized hope is not a disembodied, spiritual-only state in heaven for the rest of eternity. Our hope secured through Christ defeating the last enemy of death with his resurrection is a physical living hope of our own resurrection to come, to live forever in the new creation under our king's perfect rule and reign. Praise be to God. In the next section, Paul is going to touch on another concern that deals with the timing of Christ's judgment and the implications for the Thessalonians as they wait. Remember, part of their concern on the timing is because they are dealing with intense persecution that is only going to worsen for them. Some of the commentators even believe those who had died may have been martyred for their faith. The question of when for them, even though Paul told them they already knew that no human knows, was still pressing. Another part of this concern is fear surrounding the final judgment. We're going to read chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers and sisters, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers and sisters, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. 
For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. Okay, you saw in your homework this week a fra- the phrase day of the Lord being used throughout all of scripture. You saw even in the Old Testament, it referred to a day of both judgment and wrath and deliverance and salvation. The judgment and wrath side of the day of the Lord was partially fulfilled in the exiles of Israel and Judah. Some of those passages you read did see partial fulfillment. Exile was God's wrath and judgment because of sin for breaking the covenant. But those Old Testament prophecies also speak of this day being of salvation and deliverance that has yet to be fulfilled for the people of God. This day of the Lord phrase that the New Testament writers use is the final and full fulfillment carried from the Old Testament. It is also just a different vantage point of the moment we already saw in the previous section, focusing in this passage more on the judgment to come for the unbelieving. In verse 3, the phrase, while people are saying there is peace and security, that phrase has ties to the Thessalonians' historical and cultural context and also ties back to the Old Testament. First, with Thessalonica being a free city and jumping through every hoop to keep that status in the Roman Empire, the outside culture's pressure was for citizens to submit to Rome for peace. Pax Romana, or the Peace of Rome, would have been the slogan found about the entire city and throughout the empire as a call that Rome could give the peace that its citizens craved. Just submit to Rome and all will be well. Just submit to Caesar, there's no need for any other king. Just submit to Rome, and there will be peace. Just submit to Rome, and everything will be secure. This would have been similar to the false prophets in Jeremiah 6.14, right before Judah's exile, telling the people of God that all was well. They had nothing to be worried about. Their message was peace, peace, when there was actually no peace. And for those in the Old Testament who put their faith in the false prophets' false peace, those in the Thessalonians' day who put their faith in the peace of Rome to grant them security, and for those in our day who put their faith anywhere besides in Christ, this day of the Lord will be like a thief in the night or like labor pains coming upon a pregnant woman, unexpected and unable to stop its result. In verses 4 and 5, we see Paul explain this day won't be like a surprise, it won't be a surprise like a thief for the brothers and sisters in Christ, meaning it won't be an unwelcome or unwanted surprise. Paul has already said no one knows when, but he wants the believers to know they are prepared no matter when it does occur. There's no need to fear. Paul uses this contrast of children of light and day to those who are night and darkness. Darkness is the realm those who are still dead of those who are still dead in their sin. The light represents those who have faith in the light of the world that has called them out of darkness into his marvelous light. Paul also uses the metaphor of sleep, which is not the same as the euphemism in the previous section. This sleep is a spiritual sleep associated with the imagery of being of the night and of darkness. 
Those who get drunk and sleep do it at night. They are not alert. They are not ready for this day of the Lord. Paul encourages the believers to remain awake and sober because they belong to the day. Drunkenness is often associated with a lack of self-control. and Soberness, a picture of self-restraint. The focus falls less on knowing the when so that believers are not surprised and more on their preparedness for this day as children of light. Paul brings back the trio of faith, hope, and love with instructions for the Thessalonian believers to armor with while they wait in verse 8. This was a putting on of a defensive armor to be spiritually prepared for Christ's return. And think about this. The spiritual armor was not of their own making. God had gifted them faith, shown them love, and promised them hope. This defense was recognizing and putting on what they were already given because of Christ. Paul makes clear in verses 9 and 10, the Thessalonians and those of us in Christ have no reason to fear this day. Because while believers are destined for affliction, now in this fallen world, as we saw back in chapter 3, verse 3, we are not destined for the wrath of God at the final judgment. We have obtained salvation at the cross of Christ. Piggybacking off of that partial full fulfillment idea with the Old Testament's use of the day of the Lord from the beginning of this section, Matthew Smethers pointed out that the cross was the day of the Lord in miniature for those who believe. At the cross, the wrath of God, the wrath God has towards sin was poured on Christ to grant those who believe salvation and deliverance from God's wrath at the full and final day of the Lord. At the end of verse 10, Paul reiterates what he said at the end of chapter 4. Our hope, whether we're alive when he returns or whether we've passed, is that we will live with Christ. And yet again, the return of Christ, the resurrection of the dead, and the final judgment are meant to be a source of encouragement, a source of building each other up, which is just helping each other grow spiritually in light of what is to come. The Thessalonians were clinging to their steadfast hope already, but they were given a clearer picture to give them hope in their grief while living in a fallen world and facing persecution and death and to dispel their fears of the final judgment, knowing they had all they needed to be prepared for the day of the Lord because of what Christ gave them assured them as they waited. In his epistles, Paul often gave theological instruction and then gave practical commands that should flow from what he had already taught. These last 17 commands can seem unrelated to what we've seen so far, but we'll see it's actually tied to the entire letter by giving the practical applications of how they should walk as they wait for God's Son from heaven. These are the concrete applications that mark the children of light. One of the commentators said, clear thinking about the end is designed to help them live as true Christians in the present. I want you to keep that in mind as we read verses 12 through 22. We ask you, brothers and sisters, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers and sisters, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, 
Help the weak. Be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. First up, Paul commanded the whole church to respect and highly esteem those who lead the spiritual family. The Thessalonians had been commended multiple times for their love, but perhaps this was a group of people that their love wasn't being experienced as strongly as it should have been in these particular relationships. Paul said leaders labor among the church, are over us in the Lord, and admonish us. They work among the gathering of believers in countless ways. They have authority and responsibility from God over the cares of, care of the souls in their local church that the writer of Hebrews says they'll give an account for. And they have the task of correcting, rebuking, and warning of people that more often than not think they're always right. Easy job, huh? In all seriousness, Paul wanted the Thessalonians and us by extension to make sure and recognize the worthy work that our leaders give their lives to day in and day out. We are called to respect our church leaders and regard them highly with deep, radical love, a reciprocation of the love that they show to their congregation. Paul then commanded every believer to be at peace among themselves. Peace and harmony among the individuals of a church is evidence of the Spirit's work in lives of believers and what would help them continue to withstand the persecution they were facing together. Then he gave commands concerning three specific groups of people. First, admonish the idol. In other translations, the idol are called the disorderly or the undisciplined, those who are not carrying out their own work but depending on others as mentioned in week three. The whole church was meant to urge them to do what was right. And a spoiler alert, the idle and disorderly don't fix this problem before the next epistle is written. Second, encourage the faint-hearted. Faint-hearted literally means small soul or little soul. And most scholars thought that this referred to those who are experiencing the deep grief of losing their believing siblings or just the downcast attitude that had overtaken them due to the never-ending persecution. The church was meant to give them encouragement to have them persevere. And third, help the weak. This is thought to have generally applied to those who were vulnerable in various ways. The sick, those who were without social status, or those in need. A commentator pointed out Greek society did not consider weakness to be a virtue in any way. But the church's response was supposed to be different. They were to take interest in the weak, pay attention to them, and remain loyal to them. Those who were disregarded by society were to be given support by the church. And Paul ends this thought with the statement, be patient with them all. Patience is part of the fruit of the Spirit and also a description of true love found in 1 Corinthians 13, which is what brothers and sisters are called to show one another. One of my favorite Bible teachers has a phrase that I think applies well to this command. Preaches easy, lives hard. It's so easy to talk about patience. Living it out is another story altogether. Our society, our society lacks patience in nearly every area of life. We have been formed to be impatient with anyone and over anything. 
Yet our call as believers in Christ is to be patient with everyone, those who are disruptive, those who are discouraged, and those who are disadvantaged. Right after instruction to be patient, they're told not to seek revenge. Don't pay back evil for evil or wrong for wrong. And think about the persecution they were enduring from outsiders and the frustrations from some groups within the community of believers. Revenge is so natural to our flesh, but believers are to trust that God is the avenger and he hears, sees, and knows. Instead of exacting revenge, we are always to seek to do good to the family of believers and the unbelieving outsiders. This was a portion of the text that really stuck out to me in uh, Nicole and I's initial readings of this book. It's so easy to pat ourselves on the back for not exacting revenge on those who have wronged us or to not hurt someone we feel like deserves it in the heat of the moment. But that's not the end of the expectation. The active command is to always seek to do good. Our faith in action is not simply dwindled down to a list of passive don'ts that we can check off and feel better about ourselves. No, it's an active call to do good to all people in all situations. Preach is easy, lives hard. Have you ever wondered about the will of God for your life? One of my favorite things about this epistle is that it's really clear in two spots. Back in chapter 4, verse 3, Paul told us the will of God uh, for us was our sanctification. And here in verses 16 through 18, he tells us that rejoicing always, praying without ceasing, and giving thanks in all circumstances is the will of God in Christ Jesus for believers. So this is just a practical side note. We can so often get caught up on certain decisions we need to make, wondering which is the Lord's will for our life. Those decisions can be paralyzing sometimes. Jen Wilkin has said something along the lines of, the Lord is less concerned with the decision and more concerned with the decision maker. In other words, what decision you make is less what the will of God is concerned with. Instead, it's who are, you are becoming in making those decisions, what you are marked by. This passage, this passage says those who believe in Christ are to be marked with joy, prayer, and gratitude. Joy comes from the Spirit of God and was one of the things that made the Christian faith stand out in the Roman Empire. And I would say that uniqueness carries over to our entire world today. We have seen how the Thessalonians had joy in the Holy Spirit even amidst their suffering. They were able to experience joy because of the gospel of Christ that reshaped their entire existence and gave them hope for the future. Paul and his team have prayed multiple times for the believers, and now they are instructed to pray. This, without ceasing, is considered hyperbole. The point was not that we should never quit praying ever at all, but that their day-to-day lives would be consistently marked with communicating with God. And they were to be marked with gratefulness, no matter what they faced. They could be grateful no matter their earthly experience because they knew the God that works all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Verses 19 through 22 are thought to be one thought with five commands. Paul started by telling the Thessalonians to not quench the spirit. Prophecy was a spiritual gift often listed and given further comment on in other Pauline epistles. 
Because of the commands, we can infer that for some reason, the Thessalonian believers were rejecting prophecies altogether in their corporate gatherings. In other congregations in the New Testament, believers were too easily allowing false prophecies and teachings to be accepted. The Spirit was often depicted as fire. So outright rejecting a gift from the Spirit could be considered trying to put out the Spirit's fire. Prophecies were to be tested by the community of believers. Did the prophecy line up with the whole of Scripture? Who is the prophet? What fruit is their life bearing? What is the prophet's view of Christ? Does the prophecy build up the church? And if everything checked out, the community was to hold fast to the prophecy, to the good. And if not, the prophecy and the prophet were to be avoided. This last section may seem a bit removed from the rest of the epistle, or at least not have a common theme in the commands. All the commands in that section are actually tied together by the third command in the list to be at peace within the body of believers. Respect and highly esteeming leaders of the church was a way of promoting peace through the congregation. Continued loyalty and relationships between members of the church that were struggling in sin, suffering, or trials, and doing good to insiders and outsiders maintained a culture of peace. Rejoicing, praying, and being grateful were markers of peace within individual believers. And allowing the spirit to do his work among the people through his gifts kept peace among the body. And as we'll see, the source, the God of peace, is mentioned in the benediction or the closing prayer. Let's read to the end of the letter. Now, may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Brothers and sisters, pray for us. Greet all the brothers and sisters with a holy kiss. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers and sisters. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. The God of peace is who sanctified the Thessalonians and will keep their spirit, soul, and body blameless until the return of Christ. They knew the God that loved them, chose them, and used his gospel to transform them is faithful. He will bring his work to completion. And this final prayer ties this letter up well, right? Their experiences of suffering and their calls to self-control are means of the Spirit's sanctifying work in the lives of the believers. Made evident by their faith as they share with others and the love that they show to others while they wait for their hope, Christ's return. Paul asked after praying multiple times in this letter for the Thessalonians that they would return the interceding work for his team. He told them to greet brothers and sisters with a holy kiss, which was a symbol of unity among these very different people, now part of the same spiritual family. And he commanded under oath that the letter be read to every member of the spiritual family so that all heard what Paul had said. Paul and his team opened this letter with grace, and he closes it with a wish that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ would be with the Thessalonians. The grace that saved them would be the same grace to sustain and sanctify them until the second coming. What the Thessalonians believed led them to certain attitudes and actions, both positive and negative. They're commended for things, they're instructed on things further. 
What Paul's team instructed them on concerning the future was meant to lead them to right belief and right action in the present. Eschatology matters because it's what shapes and forms our beliefs and actions in the present. In thinking about the return of Christ, the resurrection of believers, and the final judgment, and how that should shape and form our present the last few weeks, I couldn't stop thinking about something that I learned in the last few years with regards to church buildings in church history from the 7th century to the late 1800s. Throughout that time, cemeteries were right outside the church doors. So imagine with me, go here with me. Imagine what these believers experienced as they entered their local gathering week to week. They would walk through the graves, probably of family members, dear friends, certainly brothers and sisters in Christ. Death would be at the least a weekly realization they would have to face, re-experiencing the grief of loss and physical separation, realizing their own mortality, recalling sin's curse in the last enemy. They would arrive at the door, often painted red, symbolizing the blood of Christ. Their walk into the corporate worship gathering of believers would be a figurative walk from death to life. They would hear the gospel message, including that Christ had risen from the dead and that he would come again. And upon leaving, I can't help but picture that sometimes they would stop and envision for themselves being present for the resurrection of the glorified bodies under those graves. And imagine joining them to welcome their king and lord in the air back to his forever rule and reign in the new creation. As they entered back into their daily lives, I imagine that weekly rhythm or liturgy grew their faith to sound forth to outsiders. I imagine it grew their love to show to their leaders, brothers and sisters, and neighbors. I imagine it grew their hope for the salvation to come as they walked in a manner worthy of the faithful God who called them and would keep his promise of returning to redeem, resurrect, and renew. We probably can't bring back church cemeteries, and I'm sure our leaders would frown upon painting the glass doors red. I do, however, want us to find ways to be to purposefully think about this living, steadfast hope more rhythmically in our everyday lives to fuel our own works of faith and labors of love. I want the day of the Lord to be a day we eagerly anticipate instead of dreadfully fear. I want Christ's return to be discussed with excitement instead of contention, because no matter what view, (laughs) that will be the start of our always being with the Lord, no matter when and how it comes about. I want to encourage one another and build each other up with these words as we struggle with sin or in our suffering and grief or in the simple mundane moments of life. I want us to be confident in the faithful God of peace to sanctify us all completely as he keeps our spirit, soul, and body blameless until our Lord Jesus Christ returns. Care to join me? Let's pray. Lord, I thank you. I thank you for this letter. I thank you for the hope that it gets to end on, Lord. This hope that 
no matter what um, the Thessalonians were facing, no matter what we're facing um, as individuals, as a community of believers, that there is hope. There is hope that you will come again, that our bodies will be physically resurrected to glorified bodies, and that we will be with you forever. And so I, I pray, Lord, that from seeing this hope, that we would all think in tangible ways to, to bring this to the forefront of our minds each and every day, to bring this to the forefront of our minds when we are encouraging one another and building one another up. And I pray that that even begins in discussion groups tonight, Lord, and that you um, and your spirit would just carry that along as we leave tonight. In Jesus' name, amen.